We're going to be in Luke 15 again. Luke 15 is a long chapter. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It's a very familiar chapter to many people. The, the, the prodigal son, you've probably heard that statement before. It comes from Luke chapter 15. Quite often you ask people, what's Luke 15 about? They would say the prodigal son. Well, in one sense, it's about the prodigal son. But in a real sense, it's actually about the savior of sinners. You remember at the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite, were complaining, were murmuring, were grumbling, okay? Here's what they said. This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. What a terrible thing to do, right? This man, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate while he was on earth, receives sinners and eats with them. So that's their murmur, that's their complaint. Jesus responds, you can see it in verse 3, so he spoke this parable to them saying, and then we have a lost sheep that was found. And then in verse 8, we have a lost coin that was found. And then in verses um, 11 through the end, we have both a lost son who was found and a lost son who's not found. There's two lost sons in the parable uh, toward the end of the chapter. And we started looking at verses 11 through 32 last week. Then he said in verse 11, a certain man had two sons. Mark those words, two sons. So 11 through the end of the chapter, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, is not about one son, it's about two. Not about one lost son and one saved son, but two lost sons, one of which gets found by the father, and the other, it just the story just ends, and he's not a happy camper. The unhappy camper, by the way, probably signifies at least Pharisees and, and, and scribes, right? He spoke this parable to them. The Pharisees and scribes primarily. There are others that are there. Uh, tax collectors, which are were traitors, Jewish guys who worked for the hated Roman government and collect, collected not only legitimate amount of taxes, but more than they should have. And then just regular folks like us, sinners. So he spoke it to all these people and the disciples, but primarily he's focusing in on these religious leaders. They should have known better. Notice he says a certain man. So there are two sons, or there's a man and two sons. Three prominent persons in this section, a man and his two sons, the younger son and the older son. The younger son is called the, the prodigal son. Um, so I think last week I entitled this section, The Compassionate Father and the Two Lost Sons. So here we have in verse 11, a certain man had two sons, verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, this is a cultural story with theological purpose, so we have to straddle both. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine." Okay, this is a Jewish kid. 
Feeding swine is like the lowest of the low for them. And he would gladly, well, maybe this is the lowest of the low, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He, 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 he resolves to command his father. You know, this is like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. We'll get to it in a minute. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, make me like one of your hired servants. I'm going to make a big point about that in a minute. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. By the way, the lost and the found in all three parts of this parable, right? Lost sheep, found. Lost coin, found. Lost younger son, found. And they began to be merry. Remember the other two sections? Rejoicing after the found, after the lost was found, right? The finder brings the found in the company of others, and they all rejoiced. First story, second story, here's the third story, uh, same thing. He requests something of his father. Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me. Give me, give me, give me. Okay. This is a very self-centered uh, young man. He was probably a late teenager. Or could have been in his young 20s. This is culturally a no-no um, as well. So it had brought great shame on the father. He journeyed to a far country, verse 13 says, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. He journeyed to a far country. Remember last week I quoted somebody saying, it sets forth the state of alienation a sinner is in while unconverted. I think he's right. What does this far country signify? Us in our lost estate, without God, without Christ, without hope, without the promises, with guilt, with sin, with condemnation, with misery, and all everything that comes with it. There he wasted his possessions with loose or prodigal living. Life in sin squanders loosely the gifts of God. In verse 14, notice the consequences of his conduct in the far country. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So he starts to realize, I got problems. He was already in the state of want or lacking something or needing something that he really needed. But notice he starts to recognize this, and he's going he's gonna to combat his want. He's going to He's going to confront his lack. Verse 15. 
his action to combat his, the consequences of his sins. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So he's actually getting in worse, a worse situation. Notice his solitude in verse 16. This is all review. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And then he comes to his senses, verse 17. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I perish with hunger. Now, if this is more than just a cultural story about a first century Jewish young man who left his father, if there's spiritual import to this, he's off in the far country. He's alienated from God. This is a sinner uh, in his sins. He says, I perish with hunger. Now, as one man puts it, he saw he was distressed indeed. His convictions were never right. Now he saw he was undone and must perish. And I perish with hunger. So the the spiritual application there is a sinner uh, can come under the convicting influences of the Spirit of God and feel undone. Um, but it's, it's, it's an effect produced in them, not something they cause by themselves. So this guy's out there. This is, we could say, this is all of us out there coming to realize something's wrong, not just out there, those ugly, wicked people, and not just in here, but as the one British statesman said, uh, sir, I've identified the problem. I am the problem. Okay? So that's us in the far country with a lot of problems. We're creating the image of God. We're fallen. We've got all these sins in our background. We've got a polluted heart now, so we've got a guilty record. We are justly liable to divine punishment, and we suck God's air every day that he gives to us freely and curing more guilt. And we start to feel it at times. This man started to started to feel it. I will perish with hunger. And so we go to his resolve in verse 18. I think this is where I left off yesterday, last week. He makes a resolve, okay? So he's out there. It's not good. It's getting worse. He tries, uh, he tries working for a citizen. It just makes him more depressed. He tries doing things to repair the, the, the bloody stained conscience, but it doesn't work. So he makes a resolve. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So in that culture, the son would have had to pay his father back and earn the right to be considered part of the family again. This is the cultural side of this. The father would have demanded restitution. The family would have been greatly shamed. So if we're a scribe or a Pharisee, or even one of the Jewish disciples, and we're listening to this, our expectation is that if he does do this, the father will say, yeah, and you're going to work double. You brought pain and shame upon our family. You're right, you're not worthy to be called my son. I don't know if I'll ever call you my son, but... Here, go feed the sheep or whatever. Not feed the pigs. 
The Jews didn't have him. If the father hired him, it would have been for the younger son to earn his way back into his favor. Okay? But that's not repentance, right? Repentance is not earning our way back into the favor of God. This is trying to pacify God by his actions. Theologically, this is salvation by works. This poor guy was a Pelagian. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. The younger son does not understand the depths of his problem yet, nor the only remedy. The remedy when you're out there in the far country is not to go work unto the blessing of God. That's not your remedy. That's part of your problem. Keach, an old 17th century man, says, I observe from hence that the convictions of the Spirit of God tend to humble and abase a sinner. They make him poor in spirit and lay him at the feet of God. They wound him, conviction, they wound him and bring him under self-abhorrence. I infer also that a legal spirit doth at first much attend such convictions. What does he mean by a legal spirit attending conviction? Here it is. He is for doing something to procure his father's favor. That's a legal spirit. Do you have a legal spirit? I want to be right with God, therefore I'm going to do this, that, and the other. He'll forgive me of all my sins and he'll bless me. He says of this man, he did not yet see how he comes to be accepted in Jesus Christ. The prodigal seeing his own unworthiness shows that he was thoroughly convicted, convinced of sin, so far so good, and his woeful condition thereby, but in desiring to become an hired servant, it shows that great darkness was yet in his understanding. The guy doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't understand Christianity yet. Though his conscience was thoroughly awakened, yet his mind was not effectually illuminated and no marvel, seeing he was not yet returned to his father. Same man goes on and says, I do not believe he was yet converted because he did not know whether his father would pardon him or not. I think this young guy needs to learn some lines from some of our hymns, right? Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. That's a line in hymn number 393. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Okay, so this guy's over there. He's under conviction, but he's got a legal spirit. I'll earn my way back into your favor. If you tarry till you're better, if you wait until you're better, you're never going to come at all because you're not going to get better. Come to Jesus with all your filth and guilt, guilt and sins and sores, and he will clean you up. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? But notice, the beginning of verse 20, we have his return to his father. He came to his father, he starts coming, and he arose and came to his father. 
And he arose and came to his father. Now remember what he had resolved. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, I will earn my way back into your favor. I'll show you how good of a worker I can be. Just give me a chance. Now watch his father's response at the end of verse 20. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I think last week I let the cat out of the bag and I said, if the finder of the sheep in the first part of the story symbolizes, signifies Jesus, and if the woman who finds the coin also symbolizes Jesus in saving sinners, who do you think the father signifies? I'm going to say Jesus, and you'll see why in a, in a second here. This is not what the scribes, uh, Pharisees and scribes would have expected, okay? This father running out in public to his son. Men of, uh, of that public stature and reputation did not run in public. I remember the first time I read that, and I thought, they, wow. It was actually shameful for men in that culture to run in public because they had robes and it would have showed their legs. I don't know why that was shameful, but it was for them. Middle Eastern gentlemen, quoting somebody, do not run in public. Young boys run. Owners of estates do not. Okay, so we're there again. We're watching this going, what is this guy running for? We don't do that in our culture. And who is he running after? Oh, the kid that was in the far country? What in the world is going on? Remember I said sometimes in these parables, there's irony. Things actually turn out in a way that you don't at first think. So at first, they're thinking this father is going to He's going to toast his son. Toast in a bad sense, you know. Going to burn him. Ooh. It was shameful for men with robes to expose their legs as well, and running would have done that. This would have been an act of humiliation by this father, a condescending act on the part of the father, but as we'll see, beneficial for the wayward son, right? People in the village would have been, would have seen him do this. And again, this is not typical at all for a first century ancient Middle Eastern man. This man's love for his son was costly. He was found in the appearance as a man and he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. I th- methinks, as Spurgeon would say, methinks I see Jesus here in the incarnation going after sinners, the very thing the Pharisees and scribes had a problem with. He keeps illustrating and illustrating and illustrating. 
Remember the complaint of the Pharisees. This man receives sinners and eats with them. One man puts it this way. Gentlemen, I understand that you accuse me of eating with sinners. You are correct. That is exactly what I do. But I do not merely allow them to eat with me. And I do not only invite them, but like a good shepherd searching for a lost sheep and like a good woman looking for a lost coin and like this father running through the village to welcome his boy, I go out with costly love seeking these sinners whom you so despise. I am ready to pay any price to win them and to bring them home to eat with me. That's a good paraphrase, I think. Now, could the Father here signify our Lord, I've already let the cat out of the bag? It sure seems so to me. Here's the same man again. The Father must come down from the house and move out into the street in self-emptying humiliation like a servant if the prodigal is to be reconciled. In this move, the incarnation can at least be overheard, he says. If Jesus is the shepherd who seeks and finds, and if Jesus is the woman who seeks and finds, is Jesus at the edge of the village, not only the Father who comes to the lost one seeking and finding. My son was dead and is now alive. He was lost, but now he is found. Who is the finder in all three stories? Jesus finds sinners, cleans them up, brings them home to God. So they had a problem with the purpose and intent of the incarnation of the enfleshment of God. They had a problem with the purpose of the Son of God assuming our nature because he assumed our nature in order to assume our duties because we haven't done our duty. And he assumed our nature in order to assume our liabilities, our punishment as well. And they had a problem with it. They had a problem with Christianity. Basically, Sean agrees. The best understanding of the text, one man says, is to see that when the father leaves the house and takes upon himself a humiliating posture on the road, he becomes a symbol of God incarnate. He does not wait for the prodigal to come to him, but rather, at great cost, goes down and out to find and resurrect the one who is lost and dead. He was dead, but now he's alive. How did he become alive? He was resurrected spiritually. How? By virtue of the grace and power of of Christ. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I've been reading a lot of quotes during this series of sermons. Listen to an 18th century man. He says this, he saw him when in the far country, spending his substance with harlots and in riotous living. He saw him when among the swine and husks. He saw him when he came to himself and all the motions and determinations of his heart. He saw him and looked upon him with an eye of love, pity, and compassion and ran He ran to him, which shows the quick notice God takes on the first motions of his own grace in the hearts of sensible sinners. See what he said that he ran signifies? It's not like 
God is going to start doing something in this sinner's life. God is already doing something in this sinner's life. Let me read it again. He ran to him, which shows or signifies the quick notice God takes on the first motions of his own grace in the hearts of sensible sinners, the speedy relief he gives to distressed ones and fell on his neck, expressive of the strength of his affection to him and of his great condescension and grace to fall on that neck which had been like an iron sinew, a piece of tough fibrous tissue, so stiff and rebellious, though now, through divine grace, was made flexible and pliable, and kissed him as a token of love, and as owning the relation he stood to him as a sign of reconciliation and friendship." In the old days, I would have reworded that and not tell you it was John Gill. The older I get, I just put the quotes in there and read them because I think they're edifying. Isn't that glorious? It was like you were reading Spurgeon almost there. But notice something I want to say here. And fell on his neck. Here's what he says. He fell on that neck which had been like an iron sinew, a piece of tough, tough, fibrous tissue, so stiff and rebellious... That's the neck he fell on, but it's not stiff and rebellious now, right? Through divine grace, it was made flexible and pliable. Notice the words to his father in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy you be called your son. Notice what he does not say. Make me like one of your hired servants. Remember, he said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to make a demand of him. You, father, this is an imperative. You make me what I want to be in order that I might win your favor back. He doesn't say it this time. He confesses his sin and acknowledges he is not worthy to be called his father's son. No more, I will earn your favor by my deeds. Something's happened to that guy, okay? I will do something to gain back your love. Not, not now. He doesn't say that. And I think, or me thinks, as Spurgeon would say, this reveals something about the younger son. He saw free mercy in his father. He saw his father come after him. Despising the shame and public ridicule of an ancient Near Eastern well-to-do man running in public after a character like this guy. He saw free mercy in his father. Benjamin Keats says, now and not till now was the prodigal converted. I like that. Now his eyes were finally opened to free and sovereign forgiveness and mercy in Christ. His heart was broken by the unconditional love of the Father, or better, he understood the gospel of free grace apart from any and all works. Keats says again, this was the happy hour. The Father's compassionate look pierced his heart which denotes the infusing of a principle of grace in the soul. 
I think he's right. And this, this interpretation goes well with these words. For this my son was dead and is alive again. Now, do you think his aliveness was caused by the son? Did the son go, you know what, I'm dead. I'm going to make myself alive. Or was the son caused by an outside agent to go from deadness to life? Yes, who's the outside agent? The father here is Christ, the Savior, is, is, is applying the redemptive work that he did for sinners in the heart of this sinner, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the, the opening of the eyes, the unstopping of the deaf ears, the, uh, the, 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 the reciting, the giving of eyes that can see spiritual things where you couldn't see them again. This we don't cause in ourselves. This is caused to occur and happen in us, and boom, it happened to this guy. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Again, did the lost find itself? Could you imagine a coin going, I'm pretty good, I found myself. I was lost and then I found, my, I jumped back into the, my, my owner's hand. Or a sheep going, I don't need my shepherd. I can handle this myself. This lost son is totally undone in his filth and guilt and the mire of his swinish sins. He is hugged and kissed by the Savior in that ugly state of sin and guilt. Notice his father's words to his slaves in verses 22 through 24. He says here, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. The lost found, the restoration, and then the celebration. These are themes that are in the other parts, uh, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Now we have the same similar theme going on here. God is saving sinners, bringing them into the community of the saints where they can rejoice together in God's salvation. Now this verses 22 to 24, depicts the fact that the father's receiving the son is quick and thorough, no strings attached, okay? He started kissing him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and then he whispered in his ear, here are the conditions. If you really want to be saved, No place for doing deeds that earns the Father's love. It's conferred freely. It's not merited by us. The Father forgives the Son and confers upon him all the blessings of sonship. He is clothed with the best apparel, which prepares him for a public celebration with the Father and others. The Son receives these blessings the son does not earn these blessings. These blessings are conferred upon the son, not by virtue of the son's doing, but on the father's free and sovereign 
love and compassion for the Son. So we could say this, all is actually done by the Father, right? All good things are conferred upon the Son by the large-hearted Father. Now listen to uh, the man I've been quoting. Uh, But the Father said to his servants, the Father said not to him as many earthly fathers would, Son, have you not been a vile wretch, having wasted all I gave unto you upon harlots, and now art come home naked, or in few filthy rags on your back, and no shoes to your feet, and being almost starved with hunger? Are you returned? Be gone out of my doors. Will I think you receive such a vile will I think you receive such a vile person as you have been? No, not a word of any of this. He upbraids him not with his formal evil and lewd course of life. God, Keach says, my brethren, is not like earthly fathers. Here's the irony here. No, no, he says, his love and compassion is, uh, compassion is infinite to returning sinners. Unquote. Sometimes when I read Keach, I yell and scream for joy in my reading chair. You see, remember the irony? I said there's irony. At first, the Pharisees and the Jews of the first century listening to this story are going to think, this father should have, he should have gave it to his son. What is he doing? He looks weird out there running. Men of his stature don't run. He's falling on his neck. That's a stiff-necked, rebellious son who brought shame upon the father and his family and his reputation. Keats says, the work of conviction was already done. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. By the best robe is meant not water baptism, nor an holy life, I think this is John Gill, and conversation, nor any particular grace as faith or hope or charity or the whole of sanctification, nor Adam's robe of innocence, but what do you think he's going to say the best robe signifies? But the righteousness of Christ, of course, right? When you think of a robe covering, a royal robe covering, and you think throughout the scriptures, especially if you sing from our hymnal, you're going to go, methinks this might be a symbol of the righteousness of Christ, which is often compared to a robe or garment in scripture because it is not anything in believers, but what is unto them and upon them and is put there by an act of God's grace in imputation and is what covers their naked souls and hides their sins from the avenging eye of divine justice, protects them from all injuries and saves them from wrath to come as well as beautifies and adorns them and keeps them acceptable in the sight of God and gives them a right and title to eternal life. They put a robe on him. God imputes, reckons the righteousness of Christ to the believing sinner's account. Notice this. Keeps them acceptable in the sight of God. What keeps us acceptable in the sight of God. 
our sanctification, our living for God, or the righteousness of Christ? If our acceptance, even as believers, is dependent, even for a millisecond, on our own righteousness, our own sanctification, then we could be not accepted by God for that millisecond. But we are accepted in the beloved one, in the Son incarnate, by virtue of our union with him. And put a ring, he says, on his hand. It is a mark, Gill says, of great honor, a sign of riches, both of grace and glory. It is a declaration of sonship and heirship and is a seal of everlasting happiness. And sandals on his feet. You know how these old guys interpret these parables? They do it like this. In light of the entirety of Scripture, okay? Whatever this sandals on his feet, it seems to be a conference, right? It's a good thing that's bestowed upon this believing sinner, shod with the preparation of the gospel on our feet. You can read that elsewhere. Sandals on his feet. The gospel is as shoes to the feet. It preserves from slipping and falling, strengthens and makes more fit for walking. It protects from the stones, thorns, and scorpions of the world's reproaches. And the doctrines of it are the shoes that will never wear out, John Gill. And sandals on his feet, symbolizing gospel truths that protect us. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. Mr. Keach again says, a returning sinner or a believer is not only richly clothed and richly adorned, but also richly fed. He hath the best, the most refreshing, strengthening, and comforting provision, comforting provision of God's house, that no food, meat, nor bread will satisfy, strengthen, cheer, and comfort a poor sinner, but only feeding upon a slain Savior. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, let us eat and be merry. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Of course, metaphors, figure of speech for unless you're united to Christ, unless you have Jesus as the sole grounds for all the forgiveness you need and all the righteousness you'll ever need, you, you have no part in him or salvation unless you, unless you have him. And I think what this here is signifying as well could be, you think, since it's a corporate gathering and it's a, a festive gathering and they're celebrating the salvation of sinners, maybe there's a slight indication or signification of the Lord's Supper here too as well. Remember the, some of the old guys said that about the other feasting. Could be. The big thing is this. The reason they're doing all of this is for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be 
Mary. That's why they did all that. This guy got saved. And God calls us to rejoice in the salvation of sinners. Well, if you have been tracking at all, you should realize that I've basically kind of illustrated the gospel, the good news that sinners in the far country are found by a savior who is actually God who assumed our nature and lived as a servant, the Lord's servant, Jehovah's servant as promised in the Old Testament. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ Jesus came into the world so that we would have our best life now. Did I say last week, don't you want to punch that guy's million-dollar teeth? Best life now. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, among whom I am chief. We're all sinners. We all need the Savior to find us. He does so by sending his spirit to convict us of our guilt and sin and shame. And and then he does not call us to clean up and then go to Jesus. Because if you could clean up on your own, you don't need Jesus. You go as a guilty sinner in your soul to God through Christ. You plead his merits. You beg forgiveness based on his doing and his dying and his rising. And then he kisses your neck and he confers upon you new clothes and royal jewelry. And then, and then you get to celebrate with others and, and live the Christian life and then someday be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And then in a greater day than even the intermediate state, the eternal state, wherein dwells only righteousness. The Son of God assumed our nature, duties, and liabilities in order to bring many sons of God to glory. And he's going to do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it and help us to respond to it appropriately as guilty, blood-bought sinners who are greatly privileged to hear your word and to sing your praises. Help us to sing in light of what we've heard. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.